0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts on the channel. And today we're speaking with Jacob Steer-Williams, who is an associate professor of history at the College of Charleston and the author of the new book, The Filth Disease. Typhoid Fever and the Practices of Epidemiology in Victorian England, which is just out from the University of Rochester Press. Jacob, welcome to the show.
1: Claire, thank you so much for having me.
0: I wonder if you could begin our interview by just telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, sure. So the origins of this project really go back a a pretty long way into my early forays into the history of medicine and the history of public health and into British history, so I'm originally from Michigan, and I, I got my undergraduate degree at Michigan State University, where I was uh, intending on pursuing an MD, PhD. And near the end of my uh, undergraduate years, I took a class with a professor named Peter Vinton Johansson in the history department. And at that time, he was finishing a book on John Snow very well known in the history of public health and epidemiology, and writing this kind of intellectual uh, biography of Jon Snow that that still really stands even today as the most up-to-date book on Jon Snow and his role in both anesthesiology and in epidemiology and public health. And I began working with Peter pretty closely. And in my senior year, I took a graduate course with him that was on epidemiology. And it was in the epidemiology department, with some of the folks there, Howard Brody, um, Michael Ribb, and Nigel Paneth, that had also, he had, uh, Peter had worked with on that book. And I really became interested in the field of epidemiology today as a practice in public health and in its history. And I, I went on to pursue my PhD at the University of Minnesota and to work with John Eiler, who has two key books in the history of British public health. Um, One is on William Farr, who's uh, important in the history of vital statistics and and public health. And then two, Arthur Newsholm, who was uh, a public health officer uh, first in Brighton as a medical officer of health in the 1880s and 1890s, and later as the chief medical officer of health in the early 20th century. And and while, you know, I was both, you know, in my undergraduate years and then uh, pursuing my Ph.D., I really was, was grappling with um, some big questions in the history of, of that field. You know, there's so much in the history of epidemiology that we've looked at through the lens of, of John Snow and through the spot map of, of him, his investigation of cholera in the 1850s. And I, and I kept asking myself, well, what, what happened after John Snow? You know, so many people have seen John Snow's work as this foundational moment in the history of public health, but I but I began asking myself in graduate school, well, what happened after, and 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 that's where this book, the origins of this book, really lie, is is with that real basic uh, question, and it led me to the history of typhoid fever, cholera last struck in in pandemic form Britain in 1866, and and thereafter, while cholera was a continuous threat. British public health officers—they they looked at home to other infectious diseases to answer etiological questions about disease transmission in the community, and to grapple with the implementation of public health infrastructure and changing everyday habits of people in the environment. And they did so largely, I came to find, through focusing on ty- uh, typhoid fever as this emblematic disease of public health reform.
0: And so the, the filth disease, can you tell us a little, it, it grew out of like, this is like the work you've been doing your whole career. Like you wrote a dissertation, you've written a bunch of articles. Um, tell us about how, how the book kind of um, fits into your body of work. And, um, and can you tell us also sort of like, wh- where did you get the title?
1: Yeah, so the filth disease, it's like, um, you know, filth is this, for anyone who studied 19th century history, filth is this, this wonderful category of, of a word that is used so much in the 19th century. It was in the 19th century, both a descriptive kind of word about urban environmental degradation, and it was a moralizing word about middle class respectability and the sort of failures of, of the impoverished poor, particularly the urban poor. The filth disease, and where I take the title of my book, is from a report by Britain's, one of the most well-known and the leaders of British public health in this time, um, uh, John Simone. Simone is, is one of the, one of the most fascinating characters that I've come across in the history of British public health. He was at the center of so many public health debates in the middle decades of the 19th century. He was the first medical officer of health for the city of London. In the 1840s, um, after uh, Edwin Chadwick, who will be familiar to uh, anyone who's who's studied the history of public health, um, after Edwin Chadwick's failed leadership at the General Board of Health, John Simone took over uh, sort of in this first public health post for the nation. And he spent about 20 years until the mid-1870s trying to figure out and grapple with a really fascinating question to me. How does a small central bureaucratic office made up of doctors look over the health of a nation? And there was no blueprint for that for John Simone in the 1860s and in the early 1870s when he tried to do that. And so my book, The Filth Disease, takes its title from one of Simone's annual reports for the medical office of the local government board from 1874. It was the Central Health Office. Simone, uh, what he had done is to uh, gather a group of like-minded doctors. Uh, Simone himself was trained in pathology and was a, was a surgeon, which makes his story even more interesting in some ways that he became the sort of leader in British public health. But what he, I think he keenly recognized in the 1860s was if a nationwide system of public health was going to work in Britain, he needed people that were experts and, and really burgeoning experts in the study and the interest of, of what we would now call epidemiology, of what was not really called epidemiology at that time, but came to define what we mean by that term as both a, a, a discipline in the 20th, 20th century sense of that word, of even today, but really in the 19th century as a, as a set of practices. And Simone surrounded himself by hiring first a, a small handful, and then the cadre grew. Uh, they were called inspectors. And uh, and he hired these young guys who were uh, in their 20s and early 30s and who were on the rise. And, inter- and they were interested in questions of public health and governance. They were interested in key questions about how do infectious diseases spread and how can they be prevented? And so Simone surrounded himself with 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 these younger aspiring men and and in the gender dynamics, there are important that these were all men at this time and 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 Simone's system of how he thought public health should operate was that any time that a local area, a town, a village uh, a hamlet would have an outbreak of any infectious disease, he would send one of his inspectors to do this you know, Sherlock Holmes-like investigation by themselves. And, you know, the everyday realities of this, you know, and historians have talked about this, this growth of public health in this way, but what fascinated me so much for this book was thinking about in using historical empathy to try to figure out what was the everyday reality like for one of these inspectors? You know, they, they came to define this field of epidemiology of on-the-ground outbreak investigation, but what was their daily life like? You know, what did it mean to uh, get on a train or sometimes travel by horseback and travel to a remote place in England or Wales that you maybe had never been and to try to figure out a massive outbreak that often was still happening in real time? Um, and, and, and that's the sort of genesis of, of what I explore in this book, is what, what did those everyday practices of epidemiology look like? And Simone, in his annual report for 1874, he titled it The Filth Disease. Um, and his, he, he had made a central focus that year on typhoid fever, of all of these local investigations that his inspectors had conducted in the past two years. And it was this grand report that took on a life of its own. It was published separately as a book. He gave uh, public addresses uh, on, on this. And it really, you know, it came at a moment in British history when typhoid fever was, I argue, the most feared disease of, of the period.
0: Can you talk a little bit about why Victorian epidemiologists chose to concentrate on typhoid fever? So um, why, why, was it, why was it kind of like the, the disease at this period of time?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good that's a great question. You know, often in histories of public health, we point to cholera as being the most important disease, the most feared disease. And and I've long sort of, you know, wrestled with with that framing and, and, and no doubt cholera as a pandemic disease, which came in the 1830s, again, in the 1840s, again, in the 1850s. And finally, in the 1860s, Cholera did galvanize these, these epidemic moments, these, you know, what Charles Rosenberg calls these dramaturgical events. Cholera came, it exploded, and then it left. And, and as a result of that, we do see this explosion of, 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 of medical literature, of, of gothic literature surrounding cholera. But in non-cholera pandemic years, where public health authorities turned their attention was to more everyday infectious diseases. And, and typhoid fever, uh, a food and waterborne disease of the Salmonella family, whose epidemiology is very similar to cholera, it, it really did galvanize the attention of public health authorities across Britain because typhoid was their everyday problem. If cholera was something that could come in it could wipe out uh, uh, Britons in a short amount of time, typhoid was the disease that was always there. Uh, Charles Murchison, who is one of the most famous physicians in all of Britain in this time, he called it the endemic disease of England. And and, and typhoid was a disease that, that we, in epidemiological terms, we talk about as fulminating. And what I mean by that is it was a disease that was endemic. It was within the population, but it was a disease that would explode from time to time and seemingly unexpectedly. So you would see 500 cases here in one month, um, later you might see 30 cases in a small village, you might see an explosion of a thousand cases, but it seemed very unsystematic in its distribution. And that really puzzled the first group of public health officials, who by the 18 late 1860s and the early 1870s, this period when the debates over the cause and the communication of disease, what came to be called the germ theory, were really exploding in Europe and in North America in this time. And, and typhoid, uh, this group of, of early epidemiologists in Britain, they, they really believed by the early 1870s that typhoid was a model disease to answering these kinds of questions about how diseases spread in populations, and more importantly, perhaps, what could be done to stop the spread of these diseases, such as typhoid. And what made typhoid so important I think in this period for public health reform is that it's a disease and it's in its spread and its communication through food and water supplies. It's a disease that public health officials recognized they could make a huge difference in, in improving. And so, for example, um, water delivery systems in this period were widely disparate. Sewage removal systems were completely inconsistent from town to town, from urban to rural, and there was no systematic whole-scale approach and no single approach to public health reform at, a, at an infrastructure level. And what that led to, these early epidemiologists found, was the ability to be able to trace outbreaks of typhoid in, either, in both urban areas and in rural areas to specific sanitary faults, so leaking sewers. Uh, contaminated wells, um, adulterated food. And so it was the type of reform that was both specific but widespread at a urban ecological level. And I think that's what made typhoid such such a pivotal disease. I mean, in any given year, typhoid wasn't the number one killer of Britain's. It was usually in the top five, so it wasn't an insignificant disease threat. But it was a disease, I think, that Victorian public health officials believed they could make the most impact on the community through focusing
0: on. Because they could find the, the, the sources in this way.
1: Yeah, that's right. And that's where this field of, you know, epidemiological practice, you know, today we talk about the field of epidemiology being the cause and the, the study of the cause and the communication of, of disease. And, and epidemiology in its own history has, in the course of the 20th century, become focused uh, I- increasingly on, on complicated statistics and on modeling, but the heart of epidemiology uh, and its origins, and, and I would even argue uh, it, this is something that continued into the 20th and even the 21st century, is this study of outbreak investigation, the sort of daily, the daily grind, as we might think about it of trying to, in moments of crisis, not unlike, you know, ones that we have experienced in this past year with uh, COVID-19, of being smack dab in the middle of an outbreak, and and trying to unravel the threads of how an outbreak spreads. And and epidemiology, in, in the late 19th century, and even today, the heart of it is really trying to unravel those questions.
0: Well, I'd like to start um, with the way that you, once you get through the introduction, you, you kind of, you open the book um, and uh, you tell us that the, that this history that you're telling is less about what typhoid actually was um, biologically in the sense of like, you know, what, what is the disease that people really had and can we retrospectively diagnose it, but, and it's more about what typhoid meant. To Victorians from around 1830 until about 1900, um, and the the royal family is is actually really sort of important in helping to to shape this meaning. And I wonder that's how you open the book, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that, how that happened.
1: Yeah, you know, in, in writing this book, I had to wade through some epistemological questions that. I think any 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 scholar who studies disease in the past has to grapple with, and what I mean by that is is a very something very simple, but but as you keep thinking about it, it gets utterly complex. Which is to say, what we call typhoid today, uh, part of the the, the 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 most virulent of the Salmonella family, of B typhosis, Salmonella typhi. Is, was was not something that was named in the 19th century. Um, and, and what we know is the biological reality of typhoid today certainly existed in the 19th century in the period that I'm writing my book about. But what the Victorians called typhoid, b- particularly before the discovery of B. typhosis in the 1880s, but even after that bacteriological discovery, what they called typhoid, was not necessarily what we call typhoid today, and 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 I'm you know in an early stage in this project, I just made a decision that uh, I'm not I'm not uh, particularly interested in that biological history of what typhoid really was in this period. I, I am more interested in the sort of cultural ramifications of what what the Victorians called typhoid. And what did it mean to them? And, and what's so interesting about that story, typhoid as a name uh, originated, it actually goes back to France and the, and the explosion of the study of pathological anatomy and in Paris in particular in the 1840s. And out of that moment of this explosion of interest and in, in, in seeing patients from the symptoms they present in a clinic... To then opening up their bodies, and then what do you see pathologically, which is which has been you know, of enormous interest to historians and philosophers of medicine. In, in the 1840s, Pierre Louis, who's well known for his studies of bloodletting, Pierre Louis and some of his American students recognized that cases of what at that time was called typhus fever uh, actually presented themselves pa- in patients, living patients, in a similar way, their symptomology, but in, in those that were dead, um, pathologically, some of these folks who were diagnosed with the same disease, something else was going on inside their bodies. In the pious patches of the small intestine, they saw this huge inflammation. And so Louis coins this term, typhoid, and it means typhus like which was confusing to people at the time and, and still um, is confusing to people today in some ways. Um, I had this, this quip at the end, the conclusion of my book that more people asked me, you know, in the course of writing this book, how, how I was doing working on typhus, which always made me laugh. Um, but when typhoid was a, a, it all of a sudden had a name from the 1840s, there were all these intense debates as to what this disease was, where did it come from and, and what did it mean? And until about the 18, late 1860s, typhoid was seen as the disease of the poor. And this is where this discourse of filth that we were talking about earlier was so important. Typhoid was seen as a disease of the urban industrial poor. It was blamed on, on filthy urban environments, filthy housing, filthy sanitary habits, and, and failed morality. And, and that shaped, I think, for many years from about 1840 to the early 1870s, a lack of a coherent response to solving the, this disease at any real level of public health, of even any awareness. And, and then something really fascinating happens in the early 1870s. Queen Victoria's son, Prince Albert Edward, who became the, the next king of England, he contracted this disease supposedly on a on a hunting uh, one of his uh, very well known and infamous uh, hunting parties in the north of England. He comes down with this disease and and he's on his deathbed for months. Um, he goes to their family house in Sandringham, and and he, it's the it's the story. Uh, and in all of Britain, the front page headline news, daily telegraph messages, daily handbills being spread throughout urban cities three times a day. Uh, all of Britain, um, I, I get the sense from reading the sources, was, was fixated on this, on this crisis of whether the next king of, king of England was going to die of this disease of the poor. And, and that's what made this event so, so such, have such a significant impact. So by, by early 1871, uh, the Prince of Wales recovers from typhoid and, and Queen Victoria, who had been in mourning for about a decade uh, after the loss of her husband and Prince Albert Edward's father, she comes out of mourning and, and they hold this massive celebration in London uh, for the recovery of the Prince of Wales against typhoid fever. And it's, a, it's this indelible moment in the history of this disease in Britain when, when you can just see the discourse change, and it, it almost changes overnight, people start to recognize that, well, if, if, the, if, the, if the monarchy can get this disease, anyone can get this disease. And what's interesting to me is that I found that public health officials, you know, John Simone and his team of inspectors at the medical department, they start to change their tune here a little bit too. And they start to ask some different questions about their investigations. You know, they start they start to switch to not just investigate, you know, outbreaks of ty- typhoid in urban city centers, but they start to look at outbreaks of typhoid in suburban areas, in middle class homes, in upper class homes. And what they find is is pretty shocking to them. You know, the, the first big improvements in household sanitation, so the bringing of water closets into upper class homes um, and eventually piped water supply. Into both neighborhoods and then into homes, those were seen as progressive developments. Those were seen as positive goods um, in solving real, real uh, issues of, of water supply and sewage disposal, and and most of those came um, from the ideological belief in the 1850s and 60s that diseases were mostly spread through contaminated air, and that's you know something that Chris Hamlin and another uh, any a number of other scholars have. Have explored, and in the 1870s, after the Prince of Wales almost dies from typhoid, what these early epidemiologists find is that all of these so-called progressive sanitary technologies that the middle and upper classes had installed in their homes were completely faulty. That they were actually the the reason that in so many outbreaks of typhoid fever were happening. And and so you see this shift. Um, it's a cultural shift that I think the broader British populace recognizes that that they too must now fear this disease. Um, but it also was it was a moment in the 1870s where the public health practice changes pretty precipitously as well.
0: And so, how do they discover? How how do they discover this? Tell us tell us a little bit about this discovery and and this kind of paradigm shift that is is, is scientific but it's also cultural and social and cultural
1: yeah a lot of this depended on what I call everyday epidemiology in this book and you know uh, you know what it looked like on the ground on it from an everyday level is that an inspector would be sitting in his London office they would get uh, that office the medical department would get word that there was an outbreak in a in, in a town. And this inspector would, would get on a train usually and would go travel to that town. And then they would start an investigation. And at first in the eighteen sixties and the early 1870s, those investigations were, were pretty unstructured and, and unsystematic. You know, they were trying to figure out how to do this kind of this kind of public health work. But by the mid-1870s, when I really see this all changing and becoming more systematic. The methods of outbreak investigation that came out of that office and that were spread through various networks of public health in Britain and in North America and in wider parts of Europe, um, they start to coalesce. So for example, a local inspector would would show up to a town, would consult with local doctors, would consult with local town officials, would, uh, would ask the medical officer of health for that town. Um, about the earliest cases, and and they tried to unravel, and here's what made this sort of work so much like detective work, is they tried to establish who the earliest cases were. In the 19th century, they called this the index case, you know, the first established case of of typhoid in an area, and then they tried to work from there. Where did the case come from? Was it an imported case? Where had it been imported from? And, And how did it spread through the community? And often in this in the search for this index case, they often would find faults with either some aspect of sewage supply, sewage removal, of piped water supply, some form of contamination. And they did they they, they found this out through 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 diagramming, through disease mapping, you know the kind of spot mapping that that John Snow is very famous for. Um, but they did it through a whole host of visual technologies and experimentation of, of testing um, testing water closets in homes to seeing uh, where they go in relation to a well, digging up those pipes and, and literally finding the exact point in, in, a, in a sewage pipe where outside of a home it had been broken or defective or faulty and seeing the, the very specific ways in which Someone sick with typhoid could flush their contents uh, out of from in their water closet in their home and it would go outside of their home and it would it would it would go directly into a well that was being used for for drinking water. And in this way, the 1870s, I sort of think of that about it as is a snowball effect. So, you know, the networks of this epidemiological practice were happening all throughout Britain. And, and as these inspectors would go out and, and, and they would find all these anomalies, you know, there was no, there was no two systems that were alike in this period for sewage removal or water supply, but in the course of about a decade by 1880, the, this group of British epidemiologists had unraveled the major pathways in the spread of typhoid fe- fever, and they had largely figured out a lot of the solutions to, to preventing this disease. What makes that so fascinating to me is that that came, that knowledge came and it snowballed together before the discovery of the microbe. And usually we think about in the history of public health, that bacteriology and the discovery of the microbes responsible for the major infectious diseases was the sort of galvanizing turning point that all people needed was the aha moment of seeing cholera or typhoid or tuberculosis under the microscope. And then people started to act. You know, that's a that's a that's a big narrative in the history of public health that I think historians and scholars are still grappling with.
0: In and the it's, history- cer- it's certainly the, the lay narrative. That's what I learned in public right. health school. Right. I mean, anyway, so go on, go on.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a powerful narrative. It's one, you know, that I think it it, it, it gives us a sense of progressive development and scientific achievement, and it's something that is, um, you know, philosophically, it's something that's visual. It's something that, you know, contemporaries could point to and they could they could see the unseen. And it, it, there's powerful rhetoric around bacteriology and the germ theory. But what I found in, in, in researching and writing this book was that that narrative does not hold up for the history of typhoid fever in Britain. It may hold up for other diseases and in other places, but in this story, it really doesn't. So much so that, that when uh, the two successive discoveries of ty- the bacillus for typhoid fever in 1882 and then followed up in 1884 with another, another confirmation, the British epidemiologists who, who, who hear this news from, from continental Europe, they just say big whoop. And, mm-hmm. and, and they had assumed that typhoid was caused by a microorganism it was a, a spread in, in, in food and contaminated food and water supplies. And they had spent 15 to 20 years already unraveling that problem to the extent to where the bacteriological discovery of the bacillus was, was not really a big deal to the first generation of these epidemiologists who had studied and, and studied, the, studied the, the sort of pathways in the communication of this disease
0: so if the discovery of of the bacillus if, if you know the rise of bacteriology doesn't change what typhoid is um because you you talk about it from you know 1830 up until like 1900 the turn of the 20th century what what does change the way change the way typhoid is understood because the 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 typhoid you're writing about Lasts in this period of time, and then it goes away, or its its meaning is altered. So, um, if it's not bacteriology, what what is it?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And you know, and and here's where you know part of the heart of this project is a, is a cultural history of disease, of changing disease meanings, both to within the scientific community, but then more broadly within within the the, the populace. Um, and, and so typhoid, you know, from the period when it had a name uh, and by the 1840s uh, until uh, about the 1880s, we can see that typhoid meant uh, a certain thing. It was a filth disease. It was spread, most people argued, through air and water, and most people saw it as a repose of the poor. But by about the 1870s, with the royal family getting it and more news of, of outbreaks amongst the upper classes... It became just sort of a seen as a disease by 1880, right on the cusp of that discovery. It was a disease that, that anybody could get, and that it was a disease that, that the nation had a responsibility for curbing. And, and my argument in this book is that by 1880, typhoid was the model disease for all Britons, not just for politicians and not just for public health authorities, but for all Britons who wanted to see public health as a kind of social good, who believed that public health um, should be something that is has a central national uh, kind of arm, but also has municipal local arms. And in the course of the, the late 19th century, Britons began to overwhelmingly, I would argue, although there certainly was pushback at times, um, as I show in this book, they began to believe in the the power of public health to solve urban environmental problems. And and typhoid, I argue, was the model disease for, for making that argument. And so by 1880, before the discovery, that had all already been sort of laid out, both through the epidemiology and what was needed to to solve you know the abolishment of cesspools and privies and to bring in new kinds of technologies of municipal sanitation but after the discovery of 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 b typhosis in the 1880s that did provide more confirmation now what i found in in following through in the 1880s and in the 1890s with in research on typhoid is there did become there did start to be, become this more biological, bacteriologically inflexive kind of understanding of typhoid. But that was, uh, that at, at least initially didn't help that much either because typhoid, as, as I mentioned earlier, we know today that it's part of the, the wider salmonella family. And so at a bacteriological level, the early bacteriologists of the 1880s and the 1890s they were most likely calling typhoid a whole bunch of what we now would call the salmonella family. And so in the 1890s and in the first decade of the 20th century, there was this explosion of research by bacteriologists and and by folks who I think we can rightly call early ecologists who wanted to understand what is this family of of what came to be called the salmonella family. Of microbes. One of which presumably they thought was typhoid fever, but there were some allies that came at first to be called uh, paratyphoid A and paratyphoid B. Um, and, and and that research um, initially in the 1890s did very little, I argue, to impact everyday public health decisions. And, and it makes sense. So, you know, these epidemiologists who were who were still working in the 1890s and in the early 20th century they were going out when outbreaks were still happening in real time. Um, and they were trying to unravel the spread of a, of a disease in a local area in that real time, while people were still sick and dying. And, and the bacteriologists, you know, in order for bacteriology to make an impact on that, it had to get better at, at the science. And so often while these epidemiologists were on outbreak investigation, They would send a sample of water or of milk or, you know, usually water and milk or some other food. They would send it to a lab, but usually back to London. And and it took time for that bacteriological analysis to even come back. Um, Sometimes it would come back as a confirmed case of typhoid, but often because of the the time lapse and samples traveling, uh, so an infrastructure problem, and just because Typhoid was a tricky sub, uh, subject for bacteriologists. It was a, a, a tricky subject of the laboratory. It was easily confused. It was difficult to stain in that period. So there was a lot of bacteriological uncertainty to the extent to, you know, even around 1900, most public health officials still put more faith in epidemiological kinds of uh, uh, lessons than they did to bacteriological reports of confirmation
0: so um bef- before we um move on to the the ending which has it contains the sentence that i find, found really striking and want to talk to you about um i wondered if, if if you might tell you wanted to tell us a little bit about the british experience in the colonies um and how that affected the production of knowledge around typhoid
1: yeah certainly so you know Typhoid, as I mentioned earlier, was a disease that, you know, it was called the endemic disease of England. You know, most, most British people and public health authorities, they thought of typhoid as a, as a local disease. They certainly recognized and they heard that typhoid, yes, was was there were outbreaks of typhoid in other places in Europe and North America. And there were these big networks of, 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 of infectious disease research at this period. However, in the, 18, in the period, it took until about the 1880s for British authorities to recognize that typhoid fever was a global disease. And it was patently denied, for example, by authorities until the 1880s, that typhoid could strike uh, indigenous people across the British colonies. And I found that to be super fascinating in the course of, of writing and researching this book how the, the bigger and broader politics of, of race and racial science played into the framing of this disease. And one of the ways that I, that I got into researching this, and it sort of falls in the in, in the latter part of this book, is that the single largest outbreak of typhoid fever, it happens in the 18, late 1890s in the early 20th century during the South African War. And so as I sort of was early in the project following... Um, that outbreak in South Africa, I sort of discovered that there were all these intense questions about whether typhoid was just a disease of Europeans or whether typhoid was a disease that could strike anyone. And, it, and, 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 and those, po- the, those politics of, of framing typhoid as either a, a European disease or a global disease were really important for questions of the empire. Because the, the, the group of, of epidemiologists who were trying to study typhoid, you know, they were, they were often uh, military surgeons throughout the empire. They, m- many of them came to the conclusion, using the, the tools of epidemiology that were pioneered at home in Britain, they came to the conclusion that, yes, indigenous people could get typhoid. But that put them in a tricky position politically because... What they realized is that the spread of the British Empire was spreading typhoid. And, 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 and that was a political calculus that, that many people at the time were not comfortable with. And so you see all these what I call typhoid denialists in chapter five of, the, of my book. Uh, folks who, until the 1890s in some cases, even well after bacteriological confirmation of what this disease was, biologically speaking, they denied that typhoid could, was a global disease. They denied that typhoid was a was a disease of indigenous people, and so this uh, this this racial politics, I argue, was really important not just for the history of public health and the direction of the empire, but really in a, in the British mind for thinking about the global spread of disease. And I'll give you an example of that. Um, we often talk about, you know, Britain's role in, in tropical, the, the emerging field of tropical medicine in the late 19th century. And we often think that with studying diseases like malaria and yellow fever uh, sleeping sickness, in, in the, the late 19th century, typhoid was often framed as a tropical disease as well. That, that should tell us something really important about the way in which that disease was framed and how the framing of the disease as either a disease of Europeans or a disease of Indians and Africans, and anyone who came into contact, frankly, with infected um, food or water supplies, that framing had big, big implications.
0: Okay, and 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 so, um, can you tell us what the what the implications were? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's
1: really about the you know the implications were about this, the, the direction of the empire. You know, what was the impact that the British Empire was having on the rest of the world? Um, what were the impacts and the, and the responsibilities for establishing food, uh, um, public health infrastructure across parts of the British Empire? Something that that continued to lag um, throughout the 20th century and still lags today. So there's a way in which, you know, in the history of typhoid, you know, in, in thinking about where this project ends for this book, Typhoid by the early 20th century starts to decline across Britain, and just like it did across parts of Europe and North America in the, in the global north. Typhoid becomes a sort of forgotten disease by the 1950s when cancer and heart disease and accidents become the leading causes of death. Typhoid is just a mere memory, um, and it's a memory that's usually lap, latched onto the Victorians uh, for, for folks in Britain and even, frankly, for our, our histories of public health. However, typhoid remains even today one of the most systematic problems of the global south, and and, and 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 that forgetting from the west west perspective of typhoid typhoid is a disease that you know we don't have to deal with anymore because we have quote unquote modern progressive uh, public health infrastructure, but that's not true of, of most parts of the global south even today. And so this moment in the early 20th century when these British public health officials in India and in South Africa were grappling of this question of who can get typhoid, and then ergo whose responsibility it is to provide the infrastructure for curbing this disease became questions that had lasting significance for the global incidence of disease today.
0: It's clear that um, you're finishing up this book. The end of the book ends with... um... Was written in the wake of of the coronavirus breaking, um, and the conclusion says that in in light of of this global pandemic, um, it it seems that framing, naming, and blaming seem to be universals now in thinking about how populations understand infectious disease. So, um, those are, are naming, framing, and um, blaming are things that you talk about in the, the social and the construction of disease throughout the book. Um, but you argue that we should also add forgetting to the list. Um, so so this, this larger argument about um, forgetting and how we have for, forgotten um, some of these lessons from typhoid fever, um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the relevance of of this of remembering and 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 forgetting, um, sort of these past experiences with diseases, um, now that they 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 seem sort of newly relevant to our daily lives.
1: Yeah, sure. And there's there's a couple ways to I think think about this. One is in the big arc of the history of disease, and you know this is a you know there's there's been a big scholarly interest in the last ten or fifteen years in 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 thinking about infectious disease and and in you know, disease biographies. You know, there's a couple of university presses even that that were running um, for about 10 years, disease biography books, um, of which this, my book really isn't, but um, we, we, we can maybe put it in a similar conversation. And if we think about the big the big human history of, of disease, even in the modern period, the last 500 years, we have these big narratives, right, That that in the Western world, that infectious diseases in the 18th and 19th century dominated the everyday health landscape. And then by the early 20th century, there was a demographic epidemiological uh, transition that happened so that you know the major infectious diseases declined, chronic diseases rose, life expectancy rose, uh, fertility uh, uh, changed as well, so that by 1950, cancer, heart disease, accidents become the leading causes of death. That's still a big, powerful narrative in, in global public health discussions and in introductory textbooks in public health and, and in our history even. And, and what we've seen, um, we're experiencing right now with, with COVID-19, but we've actually been experiencing um, with H1N1, H5N1, um, SARS, uh, HIV AIDS. I think we, we've actually been experiencing these broader waves of human history that, that should tell us that, that part of our history is not just overcoming infectious diseases, but our reality is grappling with and, and dealing with infectious diseases, either emerging or re-emerging infectious diseases. And, and what's been so interesting to me in thinking about this book, which I had to add that last line about uh, COVID-19 after this book had went to press and squeeze it in as a kind <laughs> of you know, this book is coming out and mid- right as this pandemic is starting... Um uh but I but I had to say something I felt like if I had if I had the opportunity. And um, you know, typhoid is a disease, as I was mentioning earlier, that the West forgot about. But it but it, it wasn't a disease that stopped. And so, you know, the global south is still dealing and 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 dealing with typhoid and trying to solve solve its problem um with typhoid um and, and cholera as well and many other infectious diseases. And I, you know, my, one of my chief worries with, with what we're experiencing right now with COVID-19 is that, you know, in the the West and the global North more particularly might be able to, to solve the COVID-19 problem at some level. But, you know, we're hearing even today with all this news of vaccine rollouts and in, in the US and in Western Europe and all of this positivity around vaccines and, um, you know, I hear from my colleagues in other places in the world. I have some, I have a colleague in Nigeria, another colleague in South Africa, a couple of colleagues in India. And and the story of, you know, when they're going to get vaccines and, and, and reach any levels of, of herd immunity are just not on the same time and scale and geography as they are in, in, in North America and Western Europe. You know, what I really worry about, honestly, is that COVID-19 could just become another typhoid. It be, mm-hmm. could become a disease that's endemic in the global south and a disease that, that virtually disappears in the global north. And I think there's some real ways in which scholars who study disease and disease history in public health have some real expertise to weigh in at a global level today for how we think about global health. Um, because so often we, we, we haven't brought in a lot of historical discussions to those, those big questions of global health and economic development that still very much uh, shaped the world around us pre-COVID. But I think, you know, living in in now COVID forward times um, that we're going to have to continue to grapple with. We're seeing it, like I said, with vaccines today, um, but larger public health infrastructure systems. So that's one big sort of forgetting uh, aspect to this that I think this book weighs in on and can help us in a ways that I really, um, I didn't frankly see when I started this project, see what those bigger implications are. But, but COVID-19 has is, is really put them into pretty sharp focus. Um, the other, the other big lesson about forgetting here that I think this book can help us to understand is, you know, this, this, this book that I wrote is, 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 is set in a time and a place when, you know, it, it's alien to us now. um, you know, the Victorians are, are usually what most people today experience on watching, you know, TV shows um, or, or reading novels. And, and so it seems removed. But but what's interesting to me in thinking about the relevance of this this book today is that typhoid was the disease of the Victorian period in many ways. It was the disease that people worried about, worried about getting. It's the disease that their their family members suffered from. It's the disease that they heard in the news every day. And in this way, we might not be experiencing typhoid, but we will always be experiencing infectious diseases, I suspect. And so the the broader patterns of how epidemiologists and public health officials more broadly study infectious diseases, what their everyday practices are to solving unanswered problems, how they communicate with various people. How they rhetorically uh, strategize and perform in some ways, uh, levels of expertise and authority. Those are questions that that we are seeing become extremely apparent and inherently they're political types of, of practices and problems. So you know when when we saw early in the COVID nineteen pandemic, you know Anthony Fauci being up on presidential you know press briefings every day. Um, that quickly turned and he was, he was kicked off that, that aspect of, of reporting by former President Donald Trump and even criticized by, by members of Congress and his expertise sort of thrown under the bus in many circles. That, to me, speaks to what I write about in my book, about how public health knowledge is communicated. How do epidemiologists and public health officials get people to trust their authority and their expertise on the cause and the communication of disease when epidemics are happening because ultimately that's about levels of trust and communication and and those are things that that live on well past the victorians
0: and jacob you have um you've done a really wonderful job sort of translating your work into op-eds and public scholarship and um making it you know making the relevance of the history you spent so long um you know, on uh, making the relevance clear to more general audiences. Um, I wondered if if you could tell us, is is that what's taking up most of your time nowadays? Like, you know, that and homeschooling or um, is there anything anything else that that you're working on?
1: You know, it has become, um, this year has been the busiest year of my life. uh, Mm -hmm. And that partly is due to, having little kiddos at home and, you know, trying to keep up all the, all the other professional stuff that I'm doing. Um, And, you know, having this book come out in the middle of a pandemic um, certainly has some, some silver linings, you know, it's, it's gotten, you know, there's more interest in, in, in questions of public health and the history of disease. Um, And so, yeah, you're right. I, I have felt, you know, a kind of onus and a responsibility in some ways um, as somebody that studies public health and epidemiology in particular, to to try to try to get the word out that the humanities, more broadly, and the medical humanities in particular, the health humanities, it has a real something to provide for us right now um, in in this moment, and and I think it's something that that will continue as well. So yeah, you know, I'm, I've been you know fielding calls um, mm-hmm. by you know local reporters and you know trying to get out local stories about Charleston and uh, been given a lot of, you know, big public talks and writing op-eds. I'm on our, um, our university's COVID-19 task force. So I've been trying to bring, you know, the medical and the health humanities into actual policy at our university, which is really a a different kind of struggle that I've ever experienced. Um, But I'm working on a new book right now. It is tentatively titled Carbolic Colonialism. And it's about the outbreak of bubonic plague right around 1900 in South Africa. Uh, it was the last big outbreak of bubonic, uh, last big pandemic of bubonic plague that was part of what scholars call the third plague pandemic. And uh, shortly before COVID, I, I wanted uh, an NEH grant to travel to, to South Africa. And, and I found um, about 200 oversized archival boxes, that had never been opened before. And they were all about the, the response and the experience to bubonic plague in the Cape Colony. And it is uh, really exciting uh, research and um, I'm working on it. It's gonna take me a couple years to finish the book, but that's, uh, that's where I'm turning next to another sort of tense moment of, of an outbreak of a disease. This one much more uh, focused to a particular time and place and a moment in history.
0: Well, that's exciting. That's a historian's dream, you know. <laughs> Here are two boxes that no one has ever found before, and and anyway, very, um, very exciting um, project. Jacob, I want to thank you so much for for taking your time to to share your work and your thoughts with us today.
1: Thank you so much, Claire. It's a pleasure.